Good morning, Faith Community Church. I gotta say, it is a real, a real blessing to be able to preach God's word. It is a privilege, and uh, I'm just so grateful that I have the opportunity to be used by God in this way. It's incredible, and and today we're going to be talking about what I've titled a beautiful task, which is really the call to witness. I want us to to not just see that this is a task. Yes, it is a task that we are called to witness specifically of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to testify and, and show others who Jesus is, but this isn't just a task that is given to Christians. It is a beautiful privilege. And I hope that as we go through this sermon, as God's word comes through, as the spirit leads, we would really see the beauty of this task. To do that, I've, I've put together these two truths that I wanted to share with you that I really want us to meditate on and to remember and dwell on as we go through the rest of this sermon. I want us to pay attention to these two remarkable truths. The first one is that God loves us deeper than anyone ever could. Isn't that true? God, the creator of the universe, loves us, his creation, mankind, more than any other being ever could. Any person, any angel, there is no one and nothing in creation that could ever love mankind more than God does. Want to know how I know this truth? Because he created us in his image and likeness. He created mankind unique, different from all of his other creation, made in the image of him. And so we're to to reflect his goodness and his glory. That's how I know he loves us more than anyone else. What's even crazier is that we failed in reflecting his image. Mankind has failed in that task. They have turned away from the God who loved them and created them, the one who gave them purpose, and they have turned to the flesh, they've turned to the world, they've turned to sin, they've turned to disobedience. Yet God still loved them enough to send his son Jesus about that. It wasn't, it wasn't while we were good that Jesus was sent. It wasn't while mankind was, was doing well in humanity and reflecting his glory and completing his task. It was while we were enemies, Christ died for us. That's how I know that God's love is deeper than anyone ever could love us. The second truth here is even more remarkable that, that he would show enough grace to to die on a cross, to send his own son, to become flesh, to pay for my sin is grace that I could never understand. But he goes further because God is adamant about using us to do his work. I don't understand it. It's beyond my understanding of how grace functions, but God loves us so much and he's intent, he is adamant on using us, those who have been saved by the blood of Christ, who have trusted in him for salvation, he is intent on using us for his work. He could do it on his own. He doesn't need us. You know, he really does not need me to get his word across, I promise you that. But he's adamant about using us because he loves us that much. I want us to dwell on these two truths as we go through this sermon. Another reason that I know that that second point to be true is because of Acts 1.8. In Acts 1.8, right after Jesus has risen from the grave, 
He's with his disciples, and right before he ascends into heaven, he gives them this as a parting word. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So I know God is so adamant about using us that he has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us. Because we couldn't do it on our own. We could not glorify the Lord on our own. We could not be his witnesses on our own. So he is so adamant to use us that he has entered into us. He has indwelt us with his spirit and given us power to do his work. Ain't that sweet? We are so privileged. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, this beautiful task, this call to witness, has been given to those who believe. This task is to testify of God's goodness of God's grace, of God's glory as we sing about. I love that in our worship, we just sing out, God deserves the praise and honor because he's the one who is glorified. And we testify of the salvation that is had in him. Throughout history, we've seen wonderful examples of him using people, him using believers for his work. We've seen the disciples right after this, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit and they went, you know, these are the same disciples that were, were denying Jesus, who ran away when he went to the cross. Now powered by the Holy Spirit, they went out to start up the church movement. They preached the gospel to thousands and thousands of people and thousands would respond. They were doing miracles, they were doing wonders. Led by the Spirit, the Lord used them. And throughout history, he, he has used church fathers. He's used people who are preaching his word. You think of even in modern day, your Billy Grahams. Great examples of how God uses his people to be witnesses of his glory. I think even in our local church of, of Anita DeVere, I called her out in the first service. She wasn't even here. But what an example of someone who just witnesses of Jesus. Everywhere she goes, no matter who she talks to, she is talking about salvation in Jesus. That's an example of how the Lord is working in his people. He is adamant to use us. Ain't that sweet? We're now going to look forward. I know what you're thinking, preacher. We, we've been in this end time series. Are you going to talk about what's to come? I am. I am going to talk about it. We're going to be planting down in Revelation because we're going to see some examples of how God uses his people how God uses witnesses in the end times, in the hardest period on earth, to share his message and be his witnesses. Before we do so, let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you. I'm not here because I have anything good to offer, Lord. No, I am a servant. And the fact that you loved us so much that you have paid the price for our sins on the cross and giving us new life is far beyond what I could ever give appreciation for. But I'm grateful. And Lord, you're adamant to use us. You're, you're here using me for the preaching of your word and you use our people here to witness of your son Jesus. I just pray that you grow our hearts to surrender. Build in us a reliance on the power that comes from you, not in our own goodness, but in you, who is good and great and mighty. Lord, open our hearts today to be encouraged by your word, to love you deeper, and to understand the beautiful calling you've called us to. Thank you, God. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, first, I'm going to have everyone open up, if you have your Bibles, to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Here we get the first example of how God is using people in the end times. And normally when I preach on the end times, I get a lot of questions, um, whether it be in youth ministry or in any other ministry. Most people I talk to about end times, uh, a question I get frequently is, all right, Greg, you guys preach that that there's a rapture before the tribulation, right? So then who's going to preach the gospel during the tribulation? Because there are believers there. Well, how are there believers if all the believers left before the tribulation? And it's a great question. God answers it. He answers it here in Revelation chapter 7 because God, during the tribulation period, sets apart a people to do his work, to preach the gospel. Here in Revelation chapter 7, verse 4, John says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So during the tribulation period, if you want to know who the Lord is using to accomplish this beautiful task, who's witnessing of the the gospel of Jesus, it is this group first, the 144,000. And there's much... You know, debate and questions from theologians on who this is. I think the Bible's very clear here. They're from the tribes of Israel. In fact, the next verses 5 through 8 lay out that there are 12,000 from each tribe, each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So these are 144,000 Jews from Israel who, remember, before the tribulation, the rapture happened, so they, they did not believe in Jesus the Messiah Beforehand, they were waiting for a a future Messiah. But during the tribulation, the Lord reveals to them that Jesus is the true Messiah. And these 144,000 are washed by the blood of Christ. They are forgiven of their sins. And they are used by God. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 4, they're called the first fruits. They were purchased by God as first fruits during the tribulation. What that means is is that they were the start of the harvest to come. They were the first ones during the tribulation period that the Lord called, revealed his gospel to, and used to go out and bring a great harvest. That great harvest is revealed here in Revelation 7, right after John explains who the 144,000 are in, in verse 9. John says, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. That's a big number. It's so big they couldn't even record it. It was such a great large group of people that that John couldn't even keep track. It was more than he could count. It says, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues. You're talking worldwide. People from all around the world are part of this great multitude, and they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The 144,000 were the first fruits. They were the first ones to start praising God who understood salvation in Jesus. 
And because of their witness, because of their testimony, we get a great multitude of every tribe, of every nation, of every tongue from all around the world. People are coming to know who Jesus is. And they start praising the Messiah. And and the angels are standing there around the throne in verse 11. And they fall on their faces and they worship, saying in verse 12, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then in verse 13, one of the elders answered saying to John, those who are clothed in the white robes, he's talking about the great multitude, who are they and where have they come from? In verse 14, John responds, my Lord, you know. (laughs) He's asking, he's like, you know who it is. And the elder says to him, are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes white in the blood of the lamb. So we know that this great multitude are those who during the tribulation period came to the saving knowledge of Jesus and had their sins forgiven. That's the harvest that comes out from these 144,000 witnesses. What's really incredible about this is when we look at the fact that God used the Jews. He used Israel for this work. Remember, Israel was was God's chosen people of the Old Testament, and they were meant to reflect God's glory, and in the Old Testament, they failed. Even worse, the Messiah came to them. Jesus came, the true Messiah, and they put him on a cross. Not all the Jews, some of them, like the disciples, did come to know him, and they were the first fruits of that time. And throughout church history, I don't know if you know this, but because of of the Jews putting Jesus on the cross, there has been a negative response to Israel of, oh, well, they have, this is the great failure. God's not going to use those people. They're done. They're done away with. It's where we get some of the, the, the beliefs of, oh, maybe the church replaces Israel because God's done with Israel. I'm going to tell you something. God has promised all throughout Scripture that he is going to use Israel. And here in Revelation 7 is a fulfillment of that promise. There's a fulfillment in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 26, Paul says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. God doesn't go back on his promises. He promised to use Israel, and he does here in Revelation as the first fruits of those who come to know him. What these witnesses show us, what these 144,000 witnesses show us as partakers who are also witnesses of the Lord Jesus, what they show us is that God is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. He keeps his promises. We know that to be true. They're a testimony that God keeps his promises, but they're also a testimony that nobody is too far gone from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, they're they're treated throughout history as the ones who put Jesus on the cross. They're the ones who denied the real Messiah. They're the ones who, uh, they're the, the real failures, and God says, no, they are not too far gone from my gospel. They are not too far gone from my grace. Believer, neither are us. If God can use someone like me, that's proof that that you cannot be too far gone 
from the gospel to work in your life. Next, if you would turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11, here we get another example of how God is using his people during the tribulation. Here we have two witnesses, Revelation chapter 11. Two witnesses, and there's, there's much debate on who these two witnesses are. Some say that it's Moses and Elijah. Some say it's Enoch and Elijah. I, I'm not here for, for uh, theories or debates. I'm here to just preach the word. And uh, personally, I hold here that these are just two unknown believers that the Lord brings up during the tribulation to do his work. I believe that because there's no name given, so I just go with what's, what's there. But here in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, we get an explanation. The angel's speaking to John. He says, and I will grant authority. Oh, this is God speaking. He says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These two witnesses went for a whole ministry of three and a half years during the tribulation. Remember, this is the hardest period in human history. You're talking famine. You're talking death. You're talking war. You're talking like the, the worst time that's ever happened in all of Earth's history, and they for three and a half years are preaching the gospel and witnessing of Jesus Christ. The Lord has, has used them for a special purpose. In fact, in verse 4, we're told that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. This is actually a callback to Zechariah chapter 4 where the prophet is explaining about these future two olive branches. And in Zechariah chapter 4, they're referred to as the anointed ones. Two who God purposefully anoints and gives authority to to do his work. In verses 5 and 6, this is how they work. In verse 5, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Oh my. <laughs> That's some power. If, and if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These two have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. That's a lot of power. Who gave them that power? God, that's right. That's right. They were given specific power from the one who has the power so that during this time they would be protected during their three and a half years of witnessing of Jesus, they would not be harmed, and they would show through their acts that judgment is coming, but there's still salvation to be had in Christ. That's what they showed. In verse seven, we, we hear some seemingly bad news, though. When they finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss, remember, this is the Antichrist that we mentioned last week, the beast... He comes out of the abyss and he will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. This seems like a victory for the beast, am I right? To the world, this looks like a defeat of God's handyman. That's not the case. In verse eight, their dead bodies, they will lie in the street of the great city, which is Jerusalem, by the way, 
where also the Lord was crucified. In verse nine, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations, they will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and they will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in the tomb. This is the whole world, by the way. You're talking all people, all tribes, all nations. They're seeing these two witnesses. I wonder with today's technology, if it's somehow displayed on television or on the internet for all to see that these two witnesses who for three and a half years caused insane, I mean, plagues and destruction for the name of, we're witnessing of Jesus Christ. They were known worldwide. They were known for their testimony. They were known for proclaiming Jesus, and here they lie dead for three and a half days with the whole world knowing that they're dead. They're on display for all to see. And in verse 10, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, and they'll celebrate. They'll send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Think about that. They're celebrating. Oh, look, those two witnesses of God, they're dead. The beast killed them. Where's, where's God now? Where's that power that you had now? They're mocking the dead bodies. The world, are, are, they're blaspheming God. Oh, you preached life, but here you lie dead. What a scene. What a broken scene of a world that doesn't know Jesus. God intentionally left their bodies there for three and a half days. You want to know why? Because of what happens here in verse 11. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. They stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. Imagine that. Imagine being, for three and a half days, I've been mocking these dead bodies. Oh, you're done. The Lord is wrong. There is no salvation. The beast was right. He killed you. There you go. And then they come up. Great fear would strike me right there. Hold up. I've been mocking them for three and a half days. I've been mocking God for three and a half days. And here he is to show that he has conquered death. Here he is to show that death isn't the end. Here he is to show that he has power to give life. I would be afraid too if I was them. Fear fell upon their face. And in verse 12, they heard a loud voice from heaven. God made his voice clear and known. This ain't to be interpreted as anyone else. A loud voice came from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud as their enemies watched them. The whole world watching these two witnesses, they mocked them. They blasphemed them. And here they get to see, not like the the rapture which happens in an instant. I mean, this is like slowly going up. The world sees how great God is. That's beautiful. These witnesses reveal to us something about God. They reveal that God is the one who gives power. In our own life, as we're called to witness, we need to be reminded that our power comes from him. Our words come from him. We do not save lives. Only the gospel of Jesus can save lives. Only the power of God can bring the death to life. We're just here for the ride. (laughs) And what a beautiful ride it is. But they also testify that God has defeated death. I imagine during the tribulation as hardships are are just multiplying and, and pain and suffering is running rampant throughout the earth, people are struggling with looking at the flesh. 
They're struggling looking at the here and now, and, and a lot of them submit, they, they get the mark of the beast because why? They want to survive. They don't want to be tortured. They don't want to be killed. They're scared. And so they, they turn to the beast thinking that there's life there. This life ain't it. God reminds them that there's more after. There's greater after. There's eternal life with Jesus Christ. These witnesses show that. If you will turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14, later on, we get another example of how, how God works, this time through angels who are used as his witnesses to the earth. If you would turn to chapter 14, we're in verse 6. Here, John, he's, he's recording what he sees, and he says, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And so this angel's going out to the whole world. In case there's anyone who didn't get the memo, in case there's anyone who missed the message, God makes sure that they receive the message, that they receive the gospel, because his judgment is drawing near. These angels are the last attempt that God has to draw his people to him before his judgment comes. So the angel goes to every nation, tribe, and tongue, and in verse seven, he says with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. Worship him. Don't worship the beast. Worship him. He's the one who deserves the glory. Fear him. And then another angel comes, following, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And another angel comes right after following with a loud voice saying, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That's bad news. It's terrible news. That news should strike our hearts with fear for those who don't know him. And when we see God's judgments come, an instant reaction for us who are in the flesh, it's very easy to say, why? I thought God loved us. Church, I don't want us to forget those remarkable truths that we talked about in the beginning of the sermon. That first one in particular, yes, we see God and his judgment here, but make no mistake, God loves his creation. He loves us deeper than anyone ever will. In fact, even his judgments, his righteous judgments for a people who are against him, even those are an effort for him to bring people to him. He desires, he cares so deeply for people to know him that he brings upon these tribulations, these plagues, these hardships so that they would stop clinging to this flesh. They would stop clinging to this life and they would cling to him. And they, 
And there's people that don't. And God's heart breaks for them. When we see God's judgment, let us not think that God is just an angry God. No, he's sad. But his righteous judgment will come. He gives every opportunity for people to come to know him. These angels show that. They show God's patience. That throughout all of history, you know, we're thinking now, I can't wait for the rapture to come, am I right? But the reason it hasn't is because the Lord is patient. The reason it hasn't is because we have a work to do. Even during the tribulation, God is patient. He gives opportunity after opportunity until the very end for mankind to turn to him. These angels go to all the world. There's no one without excuse. Salvation is only had through Jesus Christ. And they need that. Another thing we see from these angels is that God's judgments, they're righteous. They are righteous. God does not sacrifice his goodness and his love to be a a judging God, a wrathful God. No, those things are perfectly intact the entire time. Ain't that beautiful? As we start to wrap up this sermon, I want to turn real quick to Revelation chapter 19. After God reveals through these witnesses the testimony of Jesus Christ. John comes to the end, and in chapter 19, we have this fourfold hallelujah. I'm not going to cover all of it, but it's this beautiful time where God is being praised and worshiped for how good he is. And here in verse 6, John hears this. He says, I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Amen? That's right. He reigns. And then they say, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. I can't wait for that day. I can't wait. John hears this praising. He hears that that the bride is ready. The church is with him. And right there in verse 9, the angel says to John, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Part of this beautiful task is that we prepare the bride. We, the church, are the bride of Christ. Let's keep building it. Let's keep bringing people in. Let's share the good news of Jesus so that when they receive salvation through putting their trust in Jesus, when the Holy Spirit enters them, they are part of our church. They are part of the bride. They come in. We are preparing the bride for when he comes. After this, John in verse 10, he's silly. He's in awe. There's a lot of things he's been shown. He falls to his feet to worship the angel, and the angel says to him, do not do that. I am. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Why do we preach prophecy, church? It's because of the testimony of Jesus. John, with this angel, the angel's telling him, look, we're all part of the same task. We're all called to witness. We're here to give God the glory. We're here to share that salvation comes through him. Church, we're part of that task. We are part of that task. All witnesses, 
past, present, future, are part of this beautiful task of sharing the testimony of Jesus. Like the 144,000 Jews, church, we testify that nobody's too far gone. And we also testify that God will keep his promises. They're an example of that. And if he keeps his promises, how good is John 3.16 that he loved the world so much that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. We trust in that promise. Like the two witnesses, we testify in his power. We don't testify with our own clever words. We testify by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave, the same power that worked in the apostles, the same power that worked in the two witnesses, the same power that is indwelt in you, believer. And that's the one at work. And just like the two witnesses, we also testify that God is the God of life. He has conquered the grave. Like the angels, we testify that God is patient with the world. He gives opportunity after opportunity to repent. In, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter addresses this. He says that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us not wishing for any to perish, but to all to come to repentance. That's God's heart. So I wanna bring us back to those two remarkable truths, church, that we covered in the beginning. I hope that we've seen them throughout this sermon. First off, those two remarkable truths that God loves us deeper than anyone could. And God is adamant about using us to do his work. I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna do something real quick. I'm gonna switch that around so that we can really, really feel how important this is to us individually. Church, if you're here today, believer or unbeliever, I want you to know if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you have not trusted in Jesus for salvation, repented and turned away from your sins and turned to him, if you've not done that, this is for you. And it's for us believers as well, that God loves you deeper than anyone ever could. God loves you deeper than anyone ever could. In fact, I want you to repeat this with me, but instead of us, we're gonna say me, okay? Follow along, all right, church, let's do this. God loves me deeper than anyone ever could, amen. Yes, he does. And the second one is just as true. God is adamant about using you. This is targeted for believers now. God is adamant about using you to do his work. This is not a job, this is a beautiful task, church, and he wants to use you for his glory. He wants to give you purpose in this life that is so much greater than what you have. I want you to repeat this with me. We're gonna replace the us with me. God is adamant about using me to do his work. Amen, church. Amen. As we are called to witness, as we're called to witness of the testimony of Jesus, we need to constantly be reminded of his work on the cross. We need to constantly look back at what he has done. And we're gonna do that right now. If Pastor John Desiderio would come up, he's gonna lead us in communion, church. Thank you.